I haven't bench pressed or done a pull-up for more than eight weeks. I haven't had a clean shave since March. Oh, and there's this binder in my office that my life would be so much easier if I had just remembered to bring it home before St. Patrick's Day. I would kill for a deck of cards. I wish I picked up a tennis racket from my parents' house before shelter in place, and I kick myself for not putting buy new running shoes on my to-do list in February rather than March. For the last two months, I've been stuck in a freeze-framed version of my life, the version of my life that existed on March 17th when this quarantine began. Other than food, which has found sort of a dynamic equilibrium of sorts, coming in and out at a regular cadence, every other aspect of my life is exactly as it was when shelter-in-place was implemented. It's like someone literally came in and pressed pause on my life. Sure, I could order some weights or some shoes, but as someone conservative by nature when it comes to my health, the ease and comfort with which I used to make such purchases is gone. And now, like millions of other people, my life was and continues to be stuck. But this podcast is not just about how I'm getting more and more unkempt and unpresentable. Theoretically, it's about sports, particularly canceled sports games. Now, when I first started a podcast about canceled sports games, the first question that inevitably would be asked by my friends was, oh, so you're going to do a podcast about the strike? Undoubtedly, the 1994 Major League Baseball strike, something that almost permanently ended my love affair with baseball, is the closest benchmark to what we're living through right now, at least in terms of the sheer volume of missed games. That season, after all, featured the biggest disruption in a baseball season ever. But it is often forgotten that the 1994 baseball strike was not the only strike or lockout in Major League Baseball history. There actually were eight. And three of those actually resulted in temporary disruptions that picked back up in the same season, like I'm still hoping happens this year. And none of those three seasons took place in 1994. But that's not to say that those three strikes weren't without important moments of consequence. Indeed, even though the three disruptions were not particularly long, at least by today's standards, they all presented moments, and very significant ones at that, that even after passing undoubtedly left some people frozen in moments of their own. In today's episode of Cancelled, I'm going to discuss the three in-season strikes that resulted in canceled games, but not canceled seasons, and talk about who got stuck along the way. Chapter 1. The 1972 Strike. Stuck. A step behind. Few baseball fans aren't familiar with the so-called Curse of the Bambino. But the story, for those who aren't or who need the refresher, goes as follows. The Red Sox were one of the most dominant teams in the first two decades of the 20th century, winning five World Series championships between 1903 and 1918. But, so the story goes, once the Red Sox sold their star pitcher, Babe Ruth, to their rival New York Yankees, the team became cursed. And while the Yankees started piling up championships, the Red Sox were stuck in their shadow, cursed till the end of time for their owner's reckless decision to sell off the greatest ball player of all time. Now, the unique thing about this curse was that, according to lore, it was not the case that the Red Sox were condemned to be terrible. No, to the contrary, it was that they were condemned to actually be good, to be competitive, to even at times be transcendent, but to routinely come up short. In sum and substance, the curse catapulted the hated New York Yankees to the top of the league while damning the Red Sox to be stuck in their shadow for the rest of time. And from 1918 until 2004, the Red Sox were perpetually stuck in the land of oh-so-close or just missing the mark. Well, one specific season where the baseball gods arguably lashed out at the Red Sox, but that often gets overlooked when recounting the Red Sox cursed seasons, is 1972. It was that season, after all, when a labor strike unexpectedly left the Red Sox stuck a half step behind the pack. 
The story of the 1972 Red Sox season begins on April 1st, when a very cruel April Fool's joke was played on the fans of Major League Baseball. The Players Association said enough is enough and declared that they were going to go on strike. And for the first time in 103 years of professional baseball, every single game on the schedule was canceled. Prior to the strike, club owners were upset about losing ground in the past few bargaining agreements, and the big issue for the 1972 dispute was an increase in pension funding and players' health benefits. And as the deadline for signing a new collective bargaining agreement approached, the owners vowed to hold the line and back the union into a corner. While they knew they would lose short-term cash if games were canceled, they felt they would make it back in the long term if they could break the union. Team meetings were held all over the league and it was not an easy decision. Team reps worked to convince the higher-paid stars to stick with their lower-paid teammates for the common good. Players ultimately voted overwhelmingly to support the first baseball strike if needed. Owners were betting that players would cave and crawl back, that players with such wildly differing incomes would never stand together. They appeared to have seriously underestimated the players' resolve. For players, the first baseball strike appeared scary, most players wanted to play baseball, and they didn't know how long they could last without income. But on April 1st, 1972, it became official. The players had embarked on their first strike, meaning that for the first time in history, opening day was canceled. While the 1972 strike was monumental in significance, it was brief in lifespan. Just two weeks later, a deal was reached. All in, only 86 games were canceled. But one part of the agreement that didn't get much, if any, attention at the time was that none of the canceled games would be replayed, mainly because the owners didn't want to pay the players for the missed games. It was a seemingly insignificant detail at the time, but it left seven of the 24 teams with one or two more games to be played than the rest of the pack. The other 17 teams were permanently stuck a step, or in some cases, two steps behind. And while nobody appreciated the significance of this at the time, one such team stuck a step behind the rest was the cursed Boston Red Sox, which had seven games canceled, unlike the eventual division-winning Detroit Tigers, which only had six. At the time, this was hardly a headline-generating issue. Most were just glad that the first baseball stoppage of all time was finally over. And the idea of not playing the canceled games was not half as controversial as what baseball did in 1981 after the second strike-shortened season when the league decided to crown separate division champions based upon who performed better during each half of the season. No, the asymmetry in the team's schedules in 1972 was a non-issue. There still were 155 games to be played, or in some cases 156. Fans' resentment, on the other hand, was the headline of the day. Average attendance promptly dropped 10,000 people per game. Early in the season, the few fans who did show up for games booed the players vociferously, especially those who they considered to be leaders in the strike. And it wasn't apparent at that time that the Red Sox were stuck a step behind the eventual division winners, at least not well into the season. Indeed, though the team was loaded with talent, the Red Sox initiated the slightly shortened season with a terrible start due to injuries and slumps to their key players. The team started the season 9-17 and and was seven and a half games out of first right out of the gate, making their one-game disadvantage hardly noticeable during the beginning of the season. Though the team was playing subpar baseball, there were flashes of brilliance from the team's rookie catcher Carlton Fisk and its fierce starting pitcher Louis Tian. But despite Fisk's and Tian's best efforts turning the team around, by late June, the team was 25-33, and 33, having just lost 14 of 22 against mostly subpar teams from the AL West. There was little reason for New England to expect a contender. But finally, in early July, Boston started clicking. They won seven in a row and eventually creeped back to 500. And by the July 23rd All-Star break, the red-hot Red Sox were 45-41 and 41, and were finally in striking distance of first place. The team regressed a little bit in August, but when Labor Day arrived, the AL East was in heated contention. Baltimore, Boston, New York, and Detroit 
were all within a half game of first place. By early September, the Red Sox had seized temporary control of first place, despite the one-game handicap. And as the month, month came to a close, the race for the AL East crown was a two-horse race between Boston and Detroit. And as the baseball gods would have it, the season ended with a three-game series between the Red Sox and Tigers in Detroit. Both teams had 84 wins, but the Tigers had the luxury of playing one more game, which was reflected in the loss column. The Red Sox were 84 and 68, and the Tigers were 84 and 69. Enter the curse of the Bambino. In game one of the set, Boston trailed 1-0 in the top of the third when the Red Sox started rallying, getting back-to-back -back hits and setting up a first and third situation with just one out. On first was Luis Aparicio, considered one of the best base runners of all time. And at the plate was Carl Yastrzemski, easily the best hitter on the team. The elements were aligning. Boston was poised to get back in this game. And with a half-game lead over the Tigers and their ace, Louis Tiant, scheduled to take the mound the next day, the Red Sox looked like they were going to render the scheduling asymmetry irrelevant. Yaz ripped a double to center, scoring one and sending the speedy Aparicio up to potentially take the lead. But as Aparicio was coming around third to score, he slipped. It was unimaginable. Aparicio fell to the ground and popped up, but he was stuck. He had nowhere to go, and so he ran back to third. Yaz's eyes, however, were set on a triple, and so as he rounded second, he couldn't stop himself and headed toward third. He was dead to rights. The inning ended with only one run, and the Aparicio slipped at rounding third legend took its place in the pantheon of cursed Red Sox events. The Red Sox ended up losing that game 4-1, to one, losing their tenuous grip on first place and falling behind the Tigers by a half game. The next day, the Tigers scraped across a run against Tiant and added two off reliever Bill Lee, winning the game 3-1 and grabbing a one-and-a-half game commanding lead over the Red Sox with only one game left to play. It was then that the scheduling quirk created by the 1972 strike finally reared its ugly head. As the Red Sox were stuck all season with less games to win than their division rival, it was only then that the true cost of missing that extra game became apparent. The Red Sox should have had two more games to play, and if they did, winning both of them would have, would have locked them in a tie with the Tigers, resulting in a one-game playoff for the division championship. But the odd decision to slice and dice the schedule unevenly left the Red Sox without the runway it needed. The next day, the Red Sox beat the Tigers to cruelly end the season a half game out of first place. The Tigers had 86 wins and 70 losses. The Red Sox had 85 wins and 70 losses. That cruelty was only highlighted by the fact that of the Red Sox canceled games that season were three more that were supposed to be played against the Tigers at home at Fenway Park, where they had the second best winning percentage in baseball. Stuck a step behind Detroit all season, the season ended with the Red Sox once again stuck on the outside, looking in on the postseason. The Red Sox and their fans will never know what would have happened if the team were permitted to play that 156th game that they were denied. And just like that, the scheduling quirk caused by the uneven number of canceled games after the first strike in Major League Baseball history, the Red Sox were once again on the outside looking in. The AL East champion Tigers ended up losing to the AL West champs Oakland A's, and the A's ended up winning the World Series. But Red Sox fans had to be wondering how their season might have played out had they not been robbed of that 156th game five months earlier. After all, the Red Sox had beat the world champion A's nine out of the 12 times they played, the best record they had against any team that season. But as fate, or luck, or the owners, or maybe the baseball gods would have it, 
the Red Sox remain stuck under the spell of the curse of the Bambino after that 1972 season, and their fans would be stuck all off-season wondering, what if? Chapter 2. The 1981 Strike. Stuck in a Moment. I've often wondered if somewhere in the back of his mind, he knew. I've wondered if he sensed that this was or might be the last appearance of his professional career. One year removed from the 1980 season in which he registered a 1.71 ERA and 20 relief appearances, Mike Willis, after all, was having a subpar season. He just couldn't find his rhythm in 1981. Willis would later recall, for some reason, I just couldn't catch the fire that I had in 1980 when I came back the next season. In 1981, I had a terrible year, and everything fell apart. With the Blue Jays holding on to a 5-4 lead in the eighth inning that evening, Toronto manager Bobby Maddock pulled starting pitcher Dave Steve and went to the bullpen, calling in the southpaw Mike Willis to start the inning what would be the last time Willis was under the lights of a big league stadium in his entire career. The 30-year-old was winless heading into that game and had walked more men than he had struck out at that point in the season. That was the year that the umpires were on strike, he would later recall. I was a screwball pitcher, which was my main pitch. We had amateur umpires as replacements. I don't think they'd ever seen that type of pitch, and they would not call it a strike. And so I would just get behind hitters and come in with a fastball and get nailed. It seemed to happen over and over. I often wondered if Willis had any family or friends in attendance that night at Exhibition Stadium in Toronto for what ultimately proved to be his last game of his career. Willis was a long way away from home that night in June 1981. Willis was born in Oklahoma, but moved with his family to Nashville at age 12, after all. Leading off for the Royals in that inning was George Brett. Brett was one for two that night with a sacrifice fly and a stolen base. But all things being equal, Brett was not having his best season either that year, batting in the low 300s and showing little power. But coming off an MVP year in which Brett batted 390 and clubbed 24 home runs, he was still the type of batter Willis probably did not want to face in the high leverage situation in which this matchup was about to take place. As a teenager, Willis was flagged as a player with a future. When he graduated high school in 1968, at the young age of just 17, he was drafted by the Cincinnati Reds. Willis then faced the tough decision about going to college or going pro before he was even old enough to vote. But Willis felt like he needed an education, and so, after being offered a partial scholarship to Vanderbilt, Willis decided to temporarily forego the pros and go to college. As Willis took the mound that night for the last appearance of his professional career, he likely reflected on the fact that he hadn't won a game since August of the prior season. And while he wasn't in line for the victory that night, with the narrow lead, an effective outing might put him in line for a hold or possibly even a save. Brett had a slight advantage in the matchup as a right-hander and Brett quickly got the best of Willis, ripping a triple to right field. Just like that, the tying run was in scoring position, with no outs. Willis probably didn't have the luxury that night of thinking back to his college days when he dominated at Vanderbilt. If he did, he might have remembered his sophomore year when he led the Commodores in wins and innings pitched and maintained a 2.39 ERA with 97 strikeouts. He might have remembered his senior year when he and teammate Jeff Peoples were considered one of, if not the best duos of starting pitchers in the SEC. That was a very special time, Willis said about his playing days at Vanderbilt. We were just starting to win in the SEC, he said. The school got behind us. We didn't have much in the way of stands. There was this little amphitheater behind home plate at McGugan Field. Students would fill it up. It was a scene when we played SEC games, especially when Tennessee came to town. And Vandy won the SEC championship the year right after I graduated. But no, those moments were probably a far cry from his mind that night, the night of June 11, 1981, during
in the last appearance of his career, right after putting the tying run on third in the eighth inning with Willie Aikens, the Royals' cleanup hitter, stepping up to the plate, who was 0 for 3 on the night. But what must have been somewhere in his mind, though probably in the very back, was the fact that he was going on strike the next day, whether he liked it or not. Just the day before, on June 10th, Judge Henry Worker of the United States District Court in Rochester rejected a request by the National Labor Relations Board for relief that would have avoided the strike. Accordingly, barring any 11th hour changes, the players, including Willis, were striking the next day on June 12th. But if he had a second to think about it, Willis probably would have had to have been thinking the strike couldn't have come at a worse time. He was already becoming a fringe player due to ineffectiveness. His roster spot was by no means guaranteed. Who knows what the roster would look like after the strike, whether it ended days, weeks, or months later, he probably thought. Would a younger gun with the ability to continue playing, perhaps in college or a semi-professional league, be able to develop and showcase his talent and snag the struggling Willis's spot after the layoff? No, what Willis must have been focusing on was getting Aikens out, and preferably striking him out, to prevent Brett, the tying run on third, from scoring. With the strike set for the very next day, Willis knew that regardless of his body of work to date, his career was about to be paused. And he wanted this last freeze frame to be a good one before the significant disruption in the schedule. With nobody out and a man on third, Willis knew his leash was short. This very well could be the last batter of his night, and he knew it. Though he probably didn't know it then, but Willis very well could have been the last batter Willis would face in his professional career. This was Willis's fifth year in the majors, all with the Blue Jays. After graduating from Vanderbilt in 1972, Willis was drafted by the Baltimore Orioles. Willis was effective in the Orioles' minor league organization, but at that point in time, it was a tough time trying to break into the majors as a starting pitchers in that organization. The Orioles had been to the World Series multiple years, multiple times during that stretch. The 1971 Orioles had a four-man rotation of Mike Quaylard, Dave McNally, Jim Palmer, and Pat Dobson that won at least 20 games each. After bouncing around the Orioles organization, Willis went to Rochester, the Orioles' AAA team in 1976. Willis would later say, In 1976, I went back to Rochester for the entire season and won 12 games. I thought I was a high prospect for them. There was a lot of competition. Baltimore always had a lot of good left-handers, and so we were all just competing against each other. They had Tippy Martinez. We were all waiting in the wings to go up. Dennis Martinez was there as well. The Orioles were in the 1979 World Series, and most of those guys came from Rochester from some point in time. The competition was stiff in the Orioles organization, and Willis had trouble getting called up. For all intents and purposes, Willis was stuck in Baltimore's minor league organization. But on that warm night in Toronto in 1981, Willis was focused on why he just couldn't find the strike zone with Aikens at the plate. As he tossed ball two, he was likely sensing the pressure in this 5-4 to four game. And while Willis couldn't seem to get a break from the umpire that night against the Royals' cleanup hitter, he did get a break in 1977 when after years of being stuck in the Orioles' minor league organization, the Toronto Blue Jays were brought into the major leagues as an expansion team. During the expansion draft, Toronto picked Willis 55th overall. And Willis was Toronto's top left-handed relief pitcher for his first two seasons in the league. In his first year, Willis appeared in 43 games, starting three of them, while collecting five saves. He pitched in 107 innings with a 3.94 ERA. The next season, the 6'2", 205-pounder would pitch in 100 innings again and in 44 games, starting two of them. And Willis would earn seven saves that season. Willis was by no means a superstar, but he was an effective pitcher for Toronto during those seasons. 
But none of that mattered during this last appearance of his career on June 11, 1981, after Willis tossed ball four against Willie Akins. The tying run was still on third, and now the go-ahead run was on first. And worse yet, there was nobody out. With Willis unable to retire a single batter that night, and after putting the tying and go-ahead runners on base, Willis was pulled from the game for reliever Roy Lee Jackson. Willis made the long, slow walk to the dugout, now relieved from the game for the last time in his career. With men on the corners and no outs, Willis's fate that night was no longer in his hands. With the strike scheduled to start the very next day, and for only the second time in Major League Baseball history, during which games were actually going to be canceled due to labor discord, the night was enveloped in uncertainty. There was no blueprint for this moment. and Players had no idea how long or short this strike would be. But after settling into the dugout for a moment, it looked like Willis might get bailed out. The reliever, Jackson, induced a hard ground ball to third. Brett, who Willis left on third, was gunned down at the plate, keeping intact the Blue Jays' 5-4 lead. All the other runners advanced, meaning that the tying run was back at third and the go-ahead run was now at second. But there was one out now in the inning. And a way out for Willis, the pitcher on the hook for both runners. Jackson promptly intentionally walked the next batter, Hal McRae, loading the, ba the bases to set up a potential inning-ending double play. With one out and the bases loaded, Jackson struck out Cesar Geronimo. Willis now had hope. The bases were loaded, but he was one out away from being bailed out. The Royals sent up Jamie Quirk to pinch hit. Though he probably didn't know it at the time, Willis was just one out away from avoiding ending his career on a loss. Willis wasn't and still isn't a household name for baseball fans. He has no championship rings, no all-star appearances, and no statistical titles of any kind. The highlight of his career came three seasons earlier, when on September 20th, 1978, the Blue Jays needed him to start the first game of a doubleheader against Ron Guidry and the eventual World Series champion, New York Yankees. Guidry was 22-2 at the time, but Willis would outduel the Bombers' ace and toss the only complete game of his career. He also struck out Reggie Jackson three times in the 8-1 win. I was a soft-throwing left-hander, and I threw a lot of breaking balls to left-handed hitters, Willis explained when asked how he pitched to Reggie Jackson. For some reason, if I hung it, he took it, and if I threw a good one, he swung at it. I don't think he ever got a hit off me. If he did, I just don't remember it. It was a war story Willis retold over and over again, and one of the first accomplishments listed in bios written about Willis years later. If there were a moment Willis would have wanted to be stuck in, it would have been that one. But that memory probably wasn't on Willis's mind when he sat helplessly by, watching Jackson start his duel with Quirk, with two outs, the bases loaded, and the Blue Jays hanging on to their one-run lead by the skin of their teeth. Jackson looked to have done his part, inducing a ground out and striking out Geronimo. But when all was said and done, Jackson couldn't pull the final rabbit out of his hat. Quirk ripped a bases-clearing double, giving the Royals a 7-5 lead and allowing both of the runners Willis was responsible for to score. While I couldn't find any footage of Willis that night after Jackson surrendered those three runs, he must have been crushed. Whether he knew it was his final game or not, he must have felt defeated. Stuck as the potential pitcher of record, after the two base runners he was responsible for had crossed home. And an inning and a half later, after the Blue Jays were unable to muster up any more run support, the Royals won 10-5. And Willis was stuck with the ignominious designation of being one of the only 13 pitchers who recorded a loss on the night before baseball was suspended indefinitely. The next day, with the baseball players going on strike, every single game in Major League Baseball was canceled. The 1981 Major League Baseball strike, the fourth stoppage of all time, 
was the first work stoppage in Major League Baseball since the 1972 Major League Baseball strike that actually resulted in regular season games being canceled. And unlike the 1972 strike, this one was brutal in longevity. The strike, which began on June 12th, forced the cancellation of 713 games, or 38% of the Major League Baseball schedule. I've often wondered how Willis felt during that month of canceled baseball. How often he thought back to that last outing against the Royals in which he took the last loss of his big league career. Whether he felt stuck in the top of the eighth inning at Exhibition Stadium. Whether he relived his final at-bat against George Brett or his final showdown with Willie Akins one more time. Did he replay those two ABs? Does he still do it to this day? It wasn't until July 31st that the two sides reached an agreement, with play resuming in August. An estimated $416 million was lost in player salaries, ticket sales, broadcast revenues, and concession revenues. The players lost $4 million a week in salaries, while the owners suffered a total loss of $72 million. But baseball was back to normal, except for Willis. Willis would later recall, We had the baseball strike in 1981, and when we returned from the strike, they sent me down. At the end of 1981, I came back, but my shoulder was hurting again. I never would admit it to anybody, but it affected the way I was throwing. That was Willis's last outing of his big league career. After the strike, Willis was sent down, and at the end of the 1981 season, he was released by the Blue Jays. Following his release, Willis signed with the Philadelphia Phillies minor league organization and spent 1982 in A. But he couldn't break back into the bigs, and after the 1982 season, he officially hung up his spikes. Most people don't realize it, and I'm not sure if Willis even does, but he is the only pitcher to record a loss before a strike and never make another major league baseball appearance again. He is now the answer to an obscure trivia question and a footnote in a baseball almanac. And there's little, if anything, written about that game. But I can't help but wonder how Willis thinks about his last appearance, whether he ever feels stuck in that moment, replaying the last game of his, of his career that might not have been had the next 713 games not been canceled. I can't help but think whether he wishes he had one more appearance, maybe not one like his complete game against the Yanks, but maybe even a mediocre one where he at least recorded a couple outs. I also wondered how Willis hoped he probably could get back to playing ball over the next two months during that summer of 1981. And I wonder how Willis's career might have ended had the strike happened just one day earlier. You see, if the players decided to strike on June 11th rather than June 12th, Willis's career would have ended on the five and one-thirds innings he tossed of one-run ball against the White Sox on June 8th, the best and longest outing of his 1981 campaign. When he later looked back on his career, maybe he would have relived that game, a game where where he recorded three strikeouts and no walks, and bailed out his own teammate in the second inning, who had left the bases loaded for Willis. But the indifference of time can be cruel and unforgiving. And sometimes, no matter how badly we want to write the script differently, finality comes when we least expect it or when we're not ready for it. There were, after all, 12 other pitchers who took a loss on that day right before the strike, but all 12 of them got another chance to pitch in the big leagues right after the strike ended. I don't know if Willis is still stuck in that loss. I don't know if he even realizes that he is the only player to make his last appearance the day before a strike while recording a loss in the process. But it's hard to imagine that he doesn't wonder what if, or that he doesn't feel some level of regret about the timing of that strike. Willis got married after he left the game, and he had a son. And then he came back to the game, this time as a minor league pitching coach. He got divorced, and he got remarried. He moved a couple times. He ended up in Texas and got a desk job. But he still floats around the game, doing things like attending old-timers games and sitting for interviews about baseball and his career with his alma mater or local beat reporters. Willis would later say, It was such a short career with only three and one-half years in the big leagues. It took me 11 years to play baseball professionally, but it seemed like a blink of an eye. He said, all of it, every last moment of it, 
was a dream. Maybe Willis, the only player in baseball history to have a strike cause a loss to be the last appearance of his career, never really let his head or his heart get stuck in that moment. Maybe his name is just stuck in a foot footnote, and he doesn't even know it. Chapter 3 the 1985 strike, stuck in a shadow. It was a call that had become all too familiar to Tim Raines. Every January for the past eight years, Raines received a call from one of his best friends, Andre Dawson, consoling him on being passed over yet another time for induction into the Hall of Fame. To make the Hall of Fame, a player must be selected on 75% of the Baseball Writers Association of America's ballots. And in Reigns' first year of eligibility in 2008, Reigns appeared on just 24.3% of those ballots. But this time, in 2016, his ninth and penultimate year of eligibility, Reigns appeared on 69.8% of the ballots, stuck just a few percentage points short of being elected. This is probably the first year out of the nine years that I've been on the ballot that I really, really feel like I have a chance, he said shortly after being told he was passed over again for the ninth straight year. Among sabermetricians, Reigns was considered one of the two best leadoff men in the 1980s, and possibly of all time. And yet Reigns always seemed to be in the shadow of the other member of that duo, Ricky Henderson. Henderson, the all-time leader in stolen bases, was selected during his first year of eligibility for the Hall, appearing on 94.8% of the ballots. But as Jay Jaffe wrote in a 2016 Sports Illustrated article, Reigns spent much of his 23-year career playing second fiddle. First in his rookie year, when his modern rookie record of 71 stolen bases was overshadowed by Fernando Valenzuela's dominance in Rookie of the Year voting, and then to his teammate and eventual best friend Andre Dawson, who was the undisputed fan favorite in Montreal during the duo's eight years together in the Expo's outfield. Reigns always found a way to be in the shadows. But it was next to Ricky Henderson where Reigns was most frequently stuck being compared and where he most often came in second. Jaffe again, it was just Reigns' fate to be cast as number two amongst the rankings of leadoff hitters, tops next to everyone save for contemporary Ricky Henderson. Born and raised in Sanford, Florida, Reigns starred in football and track as well as baseball at Seminole High School. The fifth of seven children, he was the second out of three who played professional baseball. At five foot eight, the 17-year-old was a switch-hitting shortstop when the Expos drafted him in the fifth round in 1977. Reigns played primarily at second base in the minors, showing little power but outstanding plate discipline and great speed. He ended up earning September cameos as a pinch runner in 1979 and 1980. After winning the Sporting News Minor League Player of the Year honors for hitting 354 and collecting 77 steals and 90 attempts at AAA Denver in 1980, he became the Expo's opening day left fielder the following spring. At the time, Reigns' eventual best friend Andre Dawson was the center field incumbent. Dawson was the team's top star and a reigning gold glove winner, and had a bit of a monopoly on the hearts of baseball fans in Montreal. In 1981, before baseball's 50-day labor strike, Reigns had 50 stolen bases in just 54 games, putting him on pace for 149 stolen bases that season, which would have shattered Lou Brock's modern record of 118 in one season and would have edged Hugh Nichols' all-time record of 138 set back in 1887. And he certainly was on pace to become just the fourth player since 1901 to steal 100 bases in a season. But then the strike happened leaving Reigns stuck at 50 stolen bases for 50 days before baseball finally resumed, and in an abbreviated fashion at that. Reigns finished with just, and I say just with quotation marks, 71 stolen bases that season. Reigns returned the next season and led the league once again in stolen bases with 78. 
but his, but his other numbers dipped and he missed games for what was later to be discovered to possibly be a problem relating to drug addiction. While Montreal always found a way to stay off the radar, according to a Grantland article in 2016, the city was actually regarded as one of baseball's biggest party cities, especially during what some refer to as the cocaine era of baseball during the 1980s. Reigns would later recall that he was a clean guy when he first got to Montreal. He stated, I wasn't into all that kind of stuff, but I get to Montreal and Montreal can be a party hard kind of town. With access to money that he had never had in his entire life, it wasn't long until Reigns developed the ignominious legend of sliding into bases headfirst because he had cocaine in his back pocket. It was just Reigns' luck that he was stuck in a city known for partying and on a team known for drug abuse. Reigns later reflected, I probably wasn't the only one that did undergo treatment after the 82 season, but I wasn't the only one that needed to. But the very next season, after going through drug rehab, Reigns broke out and started on a five-year tear in which he averaged a 318 batting average, 114 runs, 11 home runs, 71 steals, and a 6.4 war. He led the National League in steals in 83 with the career-high career high 90, and 84 with 75, and ranked third or fourth among NL position players in war in four of those five years, finishing seventh in the other. For the period as a whole, only Wade Boggs, Ricky Henderson, and Cal Ripken, all American League players and future Hall of Famers, were more valuable than Reigns. But a blip in the 1985 season's radar may have had a significant impact on Reigns' legacy. That was the year, after all, that players striked, and for just the third time in Major League Baseball history, that a strike resulted in canceled games. Well, it was only two games that were canceled because of that strike during August of that 1985 season. It was later determined that the owners were so angry because of the strike that they decided to retaliate against the players by colluding to control salaries. And so, after the 1986 season, in which Reigns stole 70 stolen bases for the sixth consecutive season and won the batting title with a 334 average, Reigns fell victim to Commissioner Peter Uberoth and the team owners' conspiracy to hold down free agent salaries. At just 27 years old, and after a season in which he finished sixth in MVP voting, it would be hard to find a team not interested in a six-time All-Star and five-tool player like Reigns. But suspiciously, he received nothing but low-ball offers. So while players like Mike Schmidt and George Foster were commanding salaries near, near $3 million, from deals inked before the 1985 strike-induced conspiracy to collude, the market for Reigns, just as the market for other stars like Kirk Gibson, was non-existent. As a result, free agents were forced to re-sign with their original teams for little or no pay raise, unless their team indicated it was not interested in their services. Thus, countless superstars after the 1985 and 1986 season, who should have been highly sought after, found that no team was apparently interested in their services and had to stay put. Stars like Reigns, Ron Guidry of the Yankees, and Doyle Alexander of the Braves had no choice but to re-sign with their prior teams. Because of ownership's response to the 1985 strike, the 27-year-old former drug addict, who still hadn't found a way to break into baseball's mainstream, and who was still hiding in the shadow of Ricky Henderson, a player who had the benefit of playing in media-rich California and the New York, was stuck in Montreal. Having no choice, Rain signed a three-year deal with the Expos for far below his market value. And adding insult to injury was the following. Not only were stars like Reigns forced to sign back with their original teams as punishment for trying to get a contract from another team, Reigns and the rest of the 1986 free agent class to whom owners gave the cold shoulder were forced to miss the entire month of April since they had waited past the final deadline for re-signing with their original teams in the vain hope of being offered a contract by another club. In other words, Reigns, at the peak of his career, was sidelined 
for the first month of the season as further retribution for the 1985 strike. But undeterred by being stuck on the bench for the first month of baseball during the 1987 season, Reigns waited patiently for the green light to get back into the game. And when he did, Reigns put on a show for the ages in his first game back on May 2nd, 1987, when he was finally permitted to be unstuck. First, he hit a first-inning triple off David Cohn. Then he walked in the third and promptly stole second, scoring on a single to left two batters later. And in the sixth, he collected his second hit of the game, a single to right, and collected his third in the ninth inning, scoring again two batters later, this time on a ground out to short. His stat line at that point? Three for four, with two runs and a walk and a stolen base. Probably enough to make his comeback one for the ages on its own. But in the tenth inning, he decided to one-up himself once again, hitting a grand slam, which ended up winning the game. The very next day, Reigns led off with a homer in a 2-0 win and hit a go-ahead home run in the seventh inning against the Braves in his fourth game back. And later in the summer, he would put on a late-inning tour-de-force at the All-Star game, entering the bottom of the sixth and going 3-for-3 with a stolen base and a game-winning two-run triple in the 13th inning, earning MVP honors in the process. Reigns went on to set career bests for on-base percentage and slugging percentage in 1987, hitting 330 in the process with a career-high 18 home runs as well as 50 steals. Even after missing a month, he led the league in runs with 123. But despite his MVP resume, Reigns finished just seventh in the MVP voting that season. Sports Illustrated called part of a long-standing pattern of neglect by the voters. Though Reigns received MVP votes in seven separate seasons and undoubtedly put together multiple MVP campaigns in the process, he never finished higher than fifth in the voting in his entire career. One can only speculate what type of hardware Reigns might have received had he not been stuck in Montreal and been able to show off in a bigger media market like Chicago where his teammate Andre Dawson had just brought his talents in 1987, and where Dawson, now out of the distant Canadian media market, promptly won the MVP award, an MVP award many revisionists believe should have been given to Reigns. But after that 1987 season, Reigns' career began to get eaten up by injuries. Reigns played another 15 seasons, but he was never an all-star again. And so, in 2017, Reigns was in the familiar place of being stuck just under the threshold of qualifying for the Hall of Fame, now in his final year of eligibility. And despite experts making Reigns' case for the Hall for nearly a decade, he still found himself on the outside looking in, with calls from his best friend and member of the Hall, Andre Dawson, becoming somewhat of an annual ritual. How his life and career might have been different without the conspiracy that was hatched after the 1985 strike, he must have wondered. Maybe he too would have been a first ballot Hall of Famer with endorsement deals and global fame like Ricky Henderson had he been snatched up by the Dodgers or the Cardinals after his monster 1986 season instead of being stuck in what baseball reference refers to as the black hole of baseball. And while little is known about whether Reigns had relapses with drugs after his 1982 breakdown, one can only speculate about whether getting out of the party city of Montreal and being picked up by a team like the Yankees a team notorious for having a strict clubhouse, might have changed the arc of his career forever. And while Reigns' injuries affected various parts of his body, not just his legs or knees, he must have wondered whether his story would have been different if the 1985 strike hadn't knocked down domino after domino, leaving him stuck playing on Montreal's AstroTurf, a surface notorious for wreaking havoc on players' bodies for the rest of the decade. But this year, in 2017, things were different. After nine years of being passed over, a passionate subset of sabermetricians like Jonah Carey from Baseball Prospectus, who cited his underrated statistics, had been patiently lobbying for Reigns. And with the advent of new statistics like war and an emphasis on Reigns' career stolen base percentage of 84.7%, which was even higher than Ricky Henderson's, the campaign to get him in the hall looked like it was finally changing voters' minds. And so, in 2017, the call Reigns received that January was not from Dawson. 
it was from the Hall of Fame. With 86% of the vote, a far cry from the low 22.6% he received during his second season of eligibility and well above the 75% required to be inducted into the Hall of Fame, Reigns had finally become unstuck. I don't know when it is that I'll finally get a real haircut or a clean shave or when I'll finally be able to lift weights again. And that binder I left on my desk, well, I don't think I'm seeing that anytime soon. For all intents and purposes, it looks like, just like so many of my friends and colleagues and family members, I'm going to be stuck in the freeze frame of my life as it existed on March 17th for the foreseeable future. But before you start feeling sorry for me or for yourself, consider for the moment some of the silver linings that have come from being stuck in whatever status you or I were in back in March. Well, for me, I've learned so much about what I actually need to survive. I've learned I don't need to constantly be doing things to be happy. And I've had the benefit of spending more uninterrupted quality time with my partner than I've ever had in my entire life. And I've had more telephone conversations with my mom and dad in the past two months than I've had in the past two decades. Think about what, if anything, you've learned about yourself or the time you've spent with loved ones that you'll probably never be able to replicate for the rest of your life. But also think for a moment about a strange privilege that this speaks to. The privilege in this environment of being able to be stuck. For every person complaining about not getting a haircut, there is now another one who can't afford one. For every person complaining about not having the ability to lift weights, there is now another too ill to lift anything at all. For every person frustrated about not having enough human contact, there is now another on the front lines who is anxious about having too much. And for every person who is wishing that they had brought something home from work, there is now someone else wishing they still had a place to work in the first instance. It may not feel like it at this specific moment, especially when your hair is a disaster, your beard is sprawling down your neck, and your muscles have completely atrophied, but there is privilege associated with the ability to be stuck in the first place. And I'm not saying that because I think people should feel guilty about having this most peculiar of privileges. Instead, I say it, as a reminder that we think about the monumental disruptions in the lives of so many other members of our community due to illness, economic instability, mental health issues, domestic violence, etc., who would give anything to go back to their lives as they existed back on March 17th. For many of us, there isn't much we can do right now as we are living in a freeze frame. But let's not forget that there are a lot of people who don't have the privilege of passing time making a podcast in their wife's closets. And let's not forget that there's going to be a lot of work we need to do to try to put these pieces back together once we get unstuck. Unstuck.